And you're listening to CITR Radio, FM 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And it's time right now for the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. You just heard right there, Jimi Hendrix and Little Richard with Keep a Knockin' from the record Friends from the Beginning. Yes, that was Jimi Hendrix on guitar and Little Richard on piano. Keep a knocking, an instrumental version. Why? Well, today on the Nardboard of Human Serviette radio show, an interview with Ian Mukai. Ian Mackay. I was going to say Ian Bukai. Ian Mackay of Fugazi on the Nardboard of Human Serviette radio show. Why? Little, little, little Hendrix. Why? Little Jimmy. Why all the stuff for. Ian Mackay, well, Ian Mackay is a huge Hendrix fan. So in honor of Ian Mackay, going to play a bunch of Hendrix bootlegs before I play two interviews that I've done with Ian Mackay. Going to play an interview I did with Ian Mackay from 2001 and then an interview I just did a couple weeks ago. So an older interview with Ian Mackay from 2001 and a brand new interview from a couple weeks ago with Ian Ian Mackay of Fugazi and Miner's Threat and Discord Records. Right now, as I mentioned, going to play some Hendrix bootlegs and going to play something here by Curtis Knight and Jimi Hendrix together. The song No Business, you'll hear Curtis singing. Then something, Wipe the Sweat by Jimi Hendrix. And I'm not even sure if Jimi Hendrix is even on this. On the record, it says, Jimi Hendrix was one of the very great rock performers of this era. This early performance by Hendrix on this album gives the listener an opportunity to enjoy their early style of this late great artist so going to play Wipe the Sweat by Jimi Hendrix hope he's playing guitar on this instrumental and then going to follow up with another killer Curtis Knight track How Would You Feel Curtis Knight and Jimi Hendrix and then an interview with from 2001 Ian Mackay and then an interview with Ian Mackay from the year well a couple weeks ago on the Nardwar the Human Serviette radio show here's Jimi Hendrix and Curtis Knight with no business <laughs> I can find a dime. The 
buy some strings for this guitar of mine. But all this bending over is putting a kink in my spine, and I'm trying to have a good time. I just ain't taking no business, no business. I just ain't taking.
I'm Ian Mackay Fugazi from Washington, D.C. Ian, you're in here in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, Burnaby, Canada. DOA minor threat. You have a poster in your hand. What do you remember about that? This show actually is uh, fairly legendary in, in Washington, D.C. terms. DOA first came to Washington, D.C. in October of 1979. They played a, a commune called Madam's Oregon. And uh, we, um, actually, I was sick that night. It's one of the two or three shows I actually intensely regret not going to. But everyone came back and said, this band from Canada is incredible. They, this is 1979 where nobody was touring, and they showed up and played in a really, like a hovel, basically. It was a commune. It was so, like, the PA was made out of, like, oatmeal canisters and stuff. And so the fact that they had come, everyone was saying, deal away. And the tape, there's a live tape from that show that was just spread around. That everyone just traded and traded and traded. Um, in 1981, was it 81? Was it 80? Well, I guess it was 81, yeah. Um, 81, uh, we got word that they were, they wanted to come down from New York. They're doing a show in New York and they wanted to come down. And we had no real access to any venues whatsoever. But there was this high school, H.P. Woodlawn, there was an alternative kind of a high school. And they let us do one gig before. So we had another gig sort of set up there. So we called DOA and said, like, well, if you guys want to come down, we can't pay you. If you want to come down and play this high school, we'll let you play on this show we have. It was just like a, it was like a, it was a free gig, basically. And they just showed up. They played an incredible set. We just passed a hat. We raised like, you know, 75 bucks. They were totally happy um, to get this dough. But most importantly, like that, that, the fact they had shown up meant so much to us that it was like, it actually is one of the, the main reasons that as like a band like Fugazi or anything I've ever been involved with, there's always, we've always had this kind of like philosophy of like, you always must make the gig. Like if DOA can make it to a high school just to pass a hat in 1981, we damn sure have to make it to every gig we ever commit to. It's like that's the, like the most important thing. That was really inspirational. DOA, you know, they were they were like I think a lot of times people forget what an important band they were, and the fact they toured as much as they did early on, they were really like the Mavericks, or like one of the them and Black Flag, and they were the bands that really went out and like blazed the trail. You also enjoyed the Subhumans, right? Didn't you guys yeah. play with them? Yeah, yeah. Subhumans. I, actually, my third didn't play with Subhumans. That was Black. Um, the Bad Brains and SOA played with Subhumans. Subhumans stayed at my parents' house. So did DOA, for that matter. You know, we all, everyone came and stayed at my parents' house. And, um, yeah, I remember the Subhuman guys, too. They were great guys. And that was a really cool show. That show was shut down. Um, it was at a place called the Rumba Club. It was on the corner, like in an alley. And uh, SOA and Bad Brains were great. Both, both men are so great. And the Subhumans came on. Um, and actually, I guess they played before this um, Bad Brains. But when they were playing, this guy who was like a, Krishna guy lived in an apartment building behind there was trying to meditate and there was so much noise coming up that he called the police and the police raided the show during the subhuman set and there was a long sort of discussion about whether the show would go on. It did go on. But sub, yeah, subhuman was a really cool band as well. When DOA did Hardcore 81, was that the first time you heard the word hardcore? I don't know actually. We've thought about, I've thought about that a lot. But I remember from our point of view, the reason that we started using the term hardcore is that we were really trying to um, differentiate between what people were calling punk rock, which is like this very Sid Vicious kind of, kind of New York or London kind of posy kind of uh, st fashion, like a fashion thing. Like it was like that was punk rock. Like you're supposed to, you know, spit on yourself and all this kind of stuff. And we thought, well, we're not. That's like a fashion thing. We're hardcore punk rock kids. Like we, it's like so. You know, the Hard Shell Baptist. Have you ever heard that term, Hard Shell Baptist? Well, Hard Shell Baptist 
is a person whose relationship with God is so intense they actually don't need to follow any of the like they can drink and smoke and whore around doing anything they want because that's how hard shell they are so the hardcore punk doesn't really need to like do any of the stuff that people sort of attribute to punk rockers other than just like be dedicated to what they're doing so that's why we first started using that term I don't know if DOA is the first band to use that but it was right at the same time it all happened at the same time Ian, how about other Canadian bands? Like, I know the rock and roll band Sloan, and they told me they made a pilgrimage to Washington, D.C. in about 1988 and almost stayed at your house. Do you remember some guys from Halifax coming to your house? Yeah, sure. There's also a band called Jellyfish from in Halifax. I think we're involved with this. Jellyfish yeah. Babies. Jellyfish Babies, right. Yeah, they actually, they were, those guys were cool. They would drive all the way down for, like, these, we did shows in these, this free show in the park. Um, and they would come down, and we'd run into them from time to time. Um, I don't know many Eastern ca Canadian bands, like like Halifax bands. I only know a handful. Obviously, when we tour, we play with bands. You know, we've met people like that. I remember a band called Porcelain Head. Do you remember them? They were from... Porcelain Forehand. Porcelain Forehead, yeah. You are the man. Um, I, I always liked them. They were kind of cool. And there's been, over the years, been you know, there's been bands I'm like, ah. Oh. Okay, of course, in the vinyl tones, of course. Which were, Did you see them? Never saw them. But that single was one of our, like... You know, that was like part of the constellation. One of their t-shirts is for sale in L.A. for $250. U.S. Well, people will buy it and that's what they'll sell it for, I guess. So, Ian, are you a vegan? Why do you ask? Just curious what you've been eating on tour and how Canada's been doing. I understand you went had some good food there in Winnipeg. Where did you hear that from? Oh, just heard it from a little bird. Did you eat some good food in Winnipeg, Ian? I did eat good food. I've actually, Canada's been very good for food. But I don't generally don't think that interesting to talk about my diet, so... Well, I was just curious, what is something you eat two of? What do I eat two of? Like, right now, if I saw some cheese, I'd have two slices of cheese. Is there something you like to have two of, Ian? Uh, two bananas could never hurt anybody. I was curious, Ian, when you're living there in D.C., people coming to your house, did you one time have a stalker living on your lawn? Like, in about 85? Did I have a stalker? We had, uh, there was a woman who once came and lived on a porch, but it's not actually a very humorous story. She ended up killing herself, so. How about the rest of the members of Fugazi? Doesn't Joe live in some sort of satanic house or some house that was deemed satanic, Ian? Yeah, according to the Prince George's County Police, yeah, Joe lived in a house that was a bunch of young kids living together. It was outside of a university. And, you know, they were into, you know, they listened to Joy Division and stuff like that, but they weren't Satanists by any means. But what had happened was that uh, one, of the, one of the people who lived in the house had found and the university is a biology section. They found a bunch of dead cats in the dumpster. And they thought, oh, this would be cool. We'll get some cat skulls. So they had these dead cats hanging to, in the sun to try to get the, you know, to get the hide off, basically, trying to get back to the bones. And somebody called the police when they raided the house. It was like in the paper. They were satanic, a satanic cult and all this stuff. Um, I don't think they were. I think that's just a, a typical kind of misunderstanding. Ian, your dad was in the Kennedy motorcade. I find this fascinating. Please explain if you could. Where did you hear that? In Punk Planet, collected interviews. Oh, yes. Uh, my father was uh, on the White, White House press corps in 1960, uh, 61. He would work for the uh, Houston Chronicle? No, Minneapolis Star at that time, I guess. And uh, he was just in the press corps, and he was in the motorcade. He was just in a bus with a bunch of the other journalists following, you know, the limousine as they came into Dallas. But he was not, like, you know, they were, like, two blocks back. So they had no idea what had happened. It was just suddenly, the bus they were riding in just suddenly accelerating and just whipped 
right through Dealey Plaza where the shooting occurred. Um, and they saw everybody running. They knew something bad had happened, but no one had any idea. They didn't know what had happened at all until they got to Parkland Hospital. They just pulled up in front of the hospital, and that's when it became apparent that something very bad had happened at that point. Has your dad seen JFK, or does he have any conspiracy theories about it, like, you know, the driver killing Kennedy? No, my father actually really, he doesn't think anybody did it but Oswald. He has no conspiracy theories whatsoever about that. He has more conspiracy. My father actually feels like the real, the real mystery is not the JFK shooting, it's the Martin Luther King. He thinks that's, that is nonsense. That was a setup. He didn't think James Earl Ray did that alone. He think that was definitely a conspiracy. He's a pretty smart guy, too, editing the crossword puzzle. That's not too easy, is it, for the Washington Post? I think it's a, sort of a habit thing. If you're in the habit of doing crossword puzzles, it's not that hard to edit them. He's been doing for quite a while. My father and both my parents are, are certainly not, um, they're both very intelligent people. When Fear played on Saturday Night Live, Ian, did you go down to Saturday Night Live and check it out in New York with Rollins and the gang? So Rollins was not there. Uh, I'll tell you the story about that if you like to hear the story about that. In the 8 in the morning, uh, some point in October, I got a call. Um, I was driving a newspaper truck for the Washington Post at the time, so 8 in the morning was brutal. Uh, it was Lauren Michaels' office calling, Lauren Michaels being the producer of Saturday Night Live. And I get this, this woman who said, Lauren Michaels' office, please hold. Now, I was completely delirious. Um, Lauren Michaels comes in the phone. He goes, hi, Ian, this is Lauren Michaels of Saturday Night Live. I'm calling you because um, I get your number from John Belushi. Uh, he says that uh, you might be able to help us get some dancers up here because we want to have fear on the show. I was completely baffled by this. And I, couldn't, I was like, pardon me? And he goes, hold on a second. And then John Belushi gets on the phone. He's like, and he says, hey, this is John Belushi. Um, I'm a big fan of Fears. I made a deal with Saturday Night Live that I would make a cameo appearance on the show if they would let Fear play. Um, I got your number from Penelope Spiris, who did Decline of Western Civilization, and she said that you guys, the Washington, D.C. punk rock kids, know how to dance. And so I wanted to get you guys to come up to the show. And, uh, you know, you guys can all come up. So it worked out that we could all arrive at the uh, Rockefeller Center where the, where the Saturday Night Live is being filmed. Um, the password to get in was Ian Mackay. And... Um, we went up the day before. The Misfits played with the Necros um, at the Ukrainian Hall, I think. So all the Detroit people were there, like Tesco, V, and Corey Rusk, and all those people from the Necros and Touch and Go people. And uh, a bunch of D.C. people, maybe 15 or 20 of us, came up from D.C. Henry was gone. He was living in L.A. at this point. So um, we went to the show. Uh, during the dress rehearsal, things got the camera got knocked over. We were dancing. They were very angry with us, and they said they were going to lock up, you know, they were going to not let us do it, and whatever. And then Belushi really put his foot down and insisted on it. So then during the actual set itself, they let us come out again. But if you watch the show, have you seen it? Yes, I have. Well, if you watch it, you know, there's a, during the show, before they go to commercials, they always go to this jack-o'-lantern, this carved pumpkin. Um, but right before, if you watch it during the song, you'll see one of our guys, this guy Bill McKenzie, coming out holding the pumpkin above his head because he's just he's just getting ready to smash it and that's when they cut they just cut it off they cut us off they kicked us out and locked us up for like two hours we were locked in a room after that they were so angry with us about um, the behavior I, I didn't think it was all that big of a they deal they locked you in a room? yeah we were locked in a room they said they were going to sue us and have us arrested for damages there wasn't there was such an um, so much hype about that the New York Post reported like five half a million dollars worth of damage and all that stuff but it it was nothing. It was like a little plastic clip or something got broken. It was um, it was a very interesting experience, and um, 
I realize how completely unnatural it is for a band to suddenly to be on a television show, particularly a band like a punk band that kind of has a momentum to suddenly be expected to like immediately just jump in to like a song in that kind of setting. It was very weird. It was yeah, largely unpleasant. Made me realize that yeah, that's something I'm not interested in doing. Was Rollins the hardest dancer? I know he wasn't there. Was he the hardest dancer in DC? I don't think there's a any kind of meter for that sort of thing. I couldn't tell you. Or one of the wilder ones? Because you mentioned one of those guys sort of the Saturday Night Live. Who are some of the ones that stick out in your mind as some of the more more adventuresome dancers there, Ian? We were all we all had our own styles. I mean the thing about DC kids is that we actually danced. I think a lot of people really there was this whole thing that kind of came up later on, which was called whatever it was called. But we never did like the slam dancing thing was always kind of a media invention. We actually had like somewhat of a choreography in our dancing, we felt like. Um we were also tough though. I mean there was a lot of it was an era where there was a lot of fighting going on. That was part of that era. You know, I think when punk was new, it caused a lot of friction. And I think that a lot of the kids who were involved with it uh, fell prey to a lot of the more aggressive elements of society. So kids fought back. And then it became, that language became a little bit too deeply ingrained in the community. And then the violence itself became a problem and that needed to be eradicated, you know. Have you been in the slam pit at all? In my life? Yeah, recently. I, uh, no. I thought in Brazil you jumped in a giant circle pit. Oh, that was 1994. Is that, is that recent? Well, kind of recent. That actually was a show we played in um, Belo Horizonte. It was like this giant free festival. It was the first independent festival they'd ever done. It was in a parking lot of a train station. There was about 4,000 people there. The stage was about 26 feet high. It was a totally absurd situation. But between the bands... Um, over the PA, they would play, um, like, uh, what's, what's Sepultura? that? Sepultura? exactly. Bands like Sepultura. They love, like, grindcore metal kind of stuff. And when they would play these bands, this insane, like, five or six hundred, like, peopled circle would develop. And Guy and I were just watching. Like, we were incredulous. It just seems impossible that this many people were dancing. And it, was, it was as big as this field. Here, show them the field so you get a sense of the... I mean, it was a huge, huge... Um, circle pit. Circle pit thing. And so Guy said, I'll give you a buck if you go for that. So I just got... It was, I just did the whole, like, one circular... It was incredible, actually. I mean, I, it was, I was laughing so hard. And it was, I mean, it was totally enjoyable. Those kids were not slamming, per se. There was no, like punches being thrown. It was just, just dancing in a giant circle. At Hagen Doss working there with Henry Rollins, did you guys once put out rat poison as a topping? That is true. But we didn't obviously didn't serve it. We just thought it was funny because it was pink and colorful. And nobody ever asked for it. So I don't think we would have put out too long, but I think that the idea was that it just looked so humorous among like the, the jimmies, the sprinkles, the coconut, you know, the raisins, and then you have this little pink confection. Did you and Henry also give a rat a mohawk? Henry, that was his his rat, Spike. He gave it a mohawk. Or he gave he it a did. mohawk. I didn't. I was he was actually not a mohawk, it was a stripe. It wasn't a, sh a haircut, it was a hair dye. He put a black stripe down his back. And what's this about it being in the freezer and then melting on Jell-O by Afro, Ian? Well, when the rat died, the rat was gotten from... Uh, Henry worked at NIH, which was uh, National Institute of Health. And his job at the time when he was a teenager was he had to deal with um, basically gassing rats who were experiment rats. So they would just do these experiments with like 400 rats, and then he would take the rats and put them into like a garbage bag and then gas them and kill them all. 
So he decided to liberate one of the rats, which was Spike. Um, but whatever tests they were doing on this rat ended up in developing some very bizarre tumor. And then the rat died. And Henry, instead of just getting rid of the rat or burying it or whatever, he actually made a little milk carton coffin for it and put it into the freezer. The part about melting on Biafra, I don't know. You have to ask Biafra about that. Jello Biafra, I was searching the internet. I'm sure you love questions that are preambled by that. And I found some website that had some story about how Henry Rollins melted a rat on you. Again, this is what happens when you exaggerate stuff on the net. I was crashing in his apartment one night when I went back down to D.C. with DOA after a dead Kennedy's East Coast tour in 81. And uh, he was still Henry Garfield then. And... When I finally fell asleep as the sun was coming up, a roommate took Henry's uh, late pet rat, who was in a little milk carton coffin in the freezer that was still being mourned, and held the rat over me, and the water started to melt. So this rat was kind of dripping and drooling on me when I woke up. Now, when Henry Rollins quit Black Flag, did his hair end up on the wall of the Discord office? No. But you're getting different stories mixed up. Please correct me, Ian. On the wall in the office was Henry. was a mirror that Henry had smashed with his head. And we had pieces of his mirror with blood all over it. And it was on a piece of cardboard that said, Mirror that Henry schlonged his head on, plus blood. There was a bag of hair that belonged to me from, uh, at one point. But I got it because it sort of was disgusting after a while. Has Henry ever offered to Ian to get you into, like, showbiz or get you any acting parts or anything like that? No. Because I've seen Minor Threat popped up for a tiny bit there. What do you think about that in SLC Punk? You know that movie SLC yeah. Punk? There's a bit of Minor Threat in that movie. Yeah. Henry had nothing to do with that, though. How about yourself, though? Have you ever listened to the Jim Rome sports show? No. I was... know what it is. They play our music. Yeah, I thought that's pretty cool. Jim Rome. Jim Rome? Jim Rome, the sportscaster. A lot of, you know, it's, you know... The Washington Redskins football team, on last year at least, apparently during like the third down, they had a they would play waiting room in the stadium. I didn't hear it myself. I was told that by many people though. Ian, what do you think about that Poison Idea record where it's Ian Mackay? I don't think it's what it's called. It's just called Ian Mackay, and the, the cover is a big spread asshole. I think that's what I don't think I think you're getting two different records mixed up again. But uh, what do I think about him? Oh, well, you know, it hurts my feelings. But I don't really care. Had you known those guys at all or done gigs no, with them? No, I don't know them. But, you know, their point of view, this is a lot of people who sort of assail my name or image or whatever. Like, their point of view is like, there's people who consider him a god. So we're just trying to show that he's a human. But my position is, is that you don't throw rocks at human beings. So if you're going to be cruel to me, then you're making me into something that's like apparently larger than life. So if they're going to they're going to be ugly about my name or ugly about me, then all they're doing is reinforcing the idea that I'm that I'm not a human being, that I am some weird god or something. I'm comfortable with myself as a human being. I don't know why they have to waste their time writing about me. But that's 12 years ago or 11 years ago. Let's get let's get topical here. Well, how about your pockets, Ian? Do you carry $5 bills in your pockets in case you have to kick somebody out and give them their money back? No, I don't. But if I need to uh Give, escort someone out of the room and give them their money back, I'm sure I can borrow the money from somebody in the room. But I wouldn't carry it in my pocket, no. I have done so in the past, but we don't have that many problems anymore. We don't really have to um, ask people to leave. You'd be surprised, though, if you just give one person's money back, 
how much more enjoyable an evening can be. Because usually it's just one or two people that are causing most of the problems. Have you, ever, have you ever planted anybody in the audience, I mean, just for a joke and pretended to kick them out just for fun? No. Did Allison of Bratmobile inadvertently chuck a tampon at you guys? You'll have to ask Allison about that. Do you remember the story at all, or perhaps what I'm alluding to? Oh, yeah. I mean, you'll start to ask Allison about that. But what's your take on that story, Ian? My take is you'd have to ask Allison about that. How about your take on this story? Calvin Johnson glass ashtray. I didn't throw it. What happened there? Because it's kind of dangerous when you open for Fugazi, isn't it? No. Well, for, wasn't it for beat happening that night? They got, like, Calvin got a glass ashtray in his, like, forehead or something that like was, that? There's 1991. I mean, I mean, is it open? Is it dangerous to open Fugazi now? No, it's not. How about 19, 1991, we were playing in Los Angeles. It was a different time, and people there were very aggressive. And when they were playing, uh, somebody threw an ashtray. It was not glass, however. It was plastic, but it was hard enough to split his nose open. And, uh, but he didn't miss a beat, because he immediately said, and you may actually get the reference, he said, somebody broke my nose, dumped the whole balcony, which is a reference. Do you, do you know the reference? Oh, I'm so disappointed in you, Nardwar. Help me, Ian. Help me. Teach me, Ian. It's a Germs live album where Darby says, somebody just broke my nose, dumped the whole balcony. So, in other words, someone hit him in the face and immediately quotes Darby, who, of course, is... You know, a quintessential L.A. punk rock guy. And I think that was one of the, you know, the Beat Happening's first sort of L.A. punk rock experiences. Like, they played smaller shows, but I don't think they'd ever been in front of something like that. I mean, the crowds have been, you know, going through quite a cycle. Like, you know, if you've been around, like, I've been involved with music for 21 years now. So I've seen, like, this kind of scene kind of go through all sorts of weird uh, conniptions. And that particular era was really, was weird. It was just, when we first started playing, the music we played was so bizarre. I think it's so funny, people talk about like our last old record being so classic, but when we first played Waiting Room, at that time, contextually, like, with the music that was being played, people thought, what is this weird reggae crap? They hated that song. So it just goes to show that like, there's always room for growth and change. And if you don't actually take advantage of that, you're, you're just gonna keep beating on the same drum. Ian, how about some craziness, though, from promoting gigs and doing your own stuff, like a stage collapsing on you in Phoenix and helicopters overhead? Do you remember that? Like, didn't you go through the stage? I didn't, yeah, I fell through the stage. It was a waterlogged stage. I was jumping up and down, and it just went up to my knees and actually managed to cut my shins fairly severely. But meanwhile, there was a police helicopter going around with a spotlight on us and skinhead kids rioting out in the uh, street there. You just can't get away from the airplanes circling around Ian Mackay here in Fugazi. Particularly when you're on a flight path, apparently. When the Teen Idols flew out to L.A. to do a gig, did you play with the Mentors? We took a Greyhound bus out to L.A. We didn't fly. Sorry, I correct myself. I'm so disappointed with you. Uh, we played at the um, Hong Kong Cafe with... Vox Pop, who ended up being 45 Grave, The Mentors, and a band called Puke Spittin' Guts. Um, we borrowed Vox Pop's bass amp. We borrowed Paul Cutler's bass. We actually flew, we took this Greyhound bus out there carrying a guitar, a bass, and a pair of drumsticks. We just soon would be able to borrow equipment. We did actually end up borrowing equipment, but they were not pleased about it. And we were paid for that gig. $15? $15, that's absolutely right. And $11 at the gig in San Francisco. That's correct, at the Mabuhe Gardens. So a new wave night. You know, we play, with, we play with the wrong brothers there. That's new wave. Wrong brothers instead of the right brothers, see? I was curious, how did San Francisco respond to, like, the speed and the aggression of the teen idols? 
Well, the night we played was a new wave night, so the actual response from the new wave crowd was one of disinterest. Um, extreme disinterest, I might even say. But the night before, the show we were supposed to play on was with the Dead Kennedys, Flipper, and the Circle Jerks. Um, Dirk Dirksen, who was the uh, guy who ran the joint, the Little Grey Gardens, had just dropped us from the bill because he didn't like the po He asked us for a photo. We sent him a fucking photo. I'm sorry. We sent him a photo. And uh, he just uh, said, oh, the dumb photo. And he just dropped us from the bill without telling us. So he'd taken a bus all the way out there for two shows, and we got to the one show, and it was gone. So he felt so bad that he put us on the next night, which was like New Wave night. But a lot of the kids we met, primarily HB kids from L.A., like the Huntington Beach punk rock kids, who came up with the Circle Jerks, came out to the gig. They were, they were, they seemed to like it. What were the mentors like? Did they help prepare you for working with Tesco V? They, no, they were just kind of, um, they were pretty scary guys. They were big, with hoods on. Nell Duce, I remember, carried his SVT uh, cabinet by himself, like, which is, that's a heavy, you know, or heavy cabinet. Um, they were, they were kind of weird. I mean, it was all weird. I mean, we were so overwhelmed by the whole experience that the whole thing was just strange. Tesco, on the other hand, I knew as a person. I didn't know him as a character. Ian, HR of Bad Brains, when they started out, was he a pre-med student? So I've read. I didn't know that until it was just recently written about in a book. And what was HR like? Did he ever, like, give any homophobia towards you at all? No. Not to me. HR was the energizer. He was really passionate about what he did. He was a visionary. He really got a lot of his kids thinking, like, we can do anything. He was really full of, like, great ideas and, like, was always the one who said, go. Like, Batman always started their set with, are you ready? That was the way. And so they were, they were a complete inspiration of a band. So I knew him on that level. When he became a roster, things became more distant, and all this, uh, the homophobic stuff, all that stuff kind of came up later on. And that, but at that point, I didn't really barely know him anymore. And now if I see him, like, of course, you know, we would say hi, but we haven't been able to actually have a conversation in, you know, 12 years. Ian, I have some really great practice tapes with about seven minutes of music and about 83 minutes of arguing. Ian Mackay. By which band? I don't know. That was a quote that you said. Oh, yeah. What do you want to know? I was curious. What did you mean by that? Well, they're my third practice tapes, but we just argued all the time. That band argued. People say, why'd you break up? We because we were sick of each other. We just argued all the time. We were kids. I mean, Brian was 14 or 15. Lyle was 16. I was 18 or 19. You know, and we were struggling, trying to figure out how to live and how to grow up. You know, and that was a, uh, that band was full of fire. So we have, we had intense arguments. And actually, one of these days I'm going to do... I may well try to do a, a record of just arguments because they're so classic. Like Thurston Moore did that for Venom, didn't he? he did this Venom oh, stage banter. I never heard that. I'd like to hear that someday. They're arguing, there's one argument we have about whether, how much you charge for the out-of-step record. I wanted to charge $3.50. I thought, two fifty for a single, make this a 12-inch, make it three fifty. bam. It'd be nice, but we end up having an argument for like half an hour about that. Well, speaking about arguments and stuff, Ian, when was the last time you got in a true blue fist fight? How do you define true blue fist fight? Well, this one, like, real full-on fist fight. This, like, it's like James Dean. I think in 1984 or 1985, 
I had been in a hospital where I had a shoulder problem that they thought was cancer, but it wasn't. It was undiagnosed pain. And I came out of the hospital. I had a biopsy on this shoulder. I came out of the hospital, and I went to go see the Minutemen play. Red Spring opened for the Minutemen. Brendan had been in a car accident and had his arm in a sling. So they had to do an acoustic set because he couldn't actually drum. He just had to play a standing-up snare or percussion-type thing. And during that Minutemen show, a guy punched my brother, Alec. And I think I hit him with a right, but my arm was so sore. And it just reminded me that it was such an intensely painful experience that it reminded me again that I was done fighting for good. And I did not fight again. I mean, I've had, I've had moments of like altercation, not, not fights like in the sense of like, there was like an argument that went into a fight. More like somebody pushed me or someone, you know, you know, did something where I kind of went, you know, pushed them back or something. But I don't fight. I don't. I think it's a, as a as a form of communication. It's a bankrupt form of communication. There was a rumor in the fancy butterfly juice that you once hit a kid in the head with a hammer. That's not true. That's a, a mutation of a story about when I was in high school. There was a kid named Josh. Uh, Josh Freeze at the Vandals. No. Because he's from Los Angeles, I'm from Washington, D.C. Okay, that was just throwing a joke out. Oh, okay. Uh, I can't think of Josh, Josh Weiner. We were in a theater production together called the Wilson Players. It was like a community theater that actually was in this school. And I was building a flat. You know what a flat is? A house. A flat of beer. No, a flat would be this things that you put up around the stage to kind of backdrop the scenery, the set. So you build a flat, you just take... You build frames, and then you stretch out, you take some fabric and stretch out, and you paint the fabric to make it look like the walls. So I was on my hands and knees, I was squatting down, banging, nailing together a flat, a frame for a flat. And a bunch of kids were smoking dope in there, which was pretty normal at that time. It was 1979 or maybe 1980. 79, 78 or 79, I guess. And I was just building this flat. They were all skin high in the corner. And Josh came over and tapped me on the shoulder, and I stood up and was like, what's up? And he was about you know, this far, and he blew pot smoke in my face, which just was insane. So I took a step back and threw the hammer at him. I hit him in the knee. I didn't hit him in the head, though. But it was not in the sense I was trying to break his knee. It was that I was having a reaction to being sort of assaulted. I felt like I had been assaulted. I don't appreciate that. I, I was minding my business. He was a bully. Do you understand that? Yes, I do, Ian. Okay. I wouldn't hit somebody there with a hammer. I'm not a malicious person. Ian, winding up here with Ian from the rock and roll band Fugazi and Where did you hear that show? Oh, yeah, Butter, Butterfield. What was it called? Butterfly? Butterfly Juice. Butterfly Juice, juice oh, fanzine. Okay. When SSD Control came down to New York, they brought a lot of their crew with them. And then there was the New York crew. There was the Boston crew fighting. Who do you think won versus the two crews? Did, was I there? I was just curious what your take on that was, like the intense loyalty, you know, the Boston crew versus the New York crew. What is your question? Like, what was the take? What's your take on that? The crews, the two crews fighting, you know, like Boston goes down to New York and the New York crew is there and it was like a big slam pit and some of the kids from Boston had giant X's on their forehead so they knew who was on their team. Hmm. Where'd you hear that from? What's your source on this stuff? This is a friend of mine named Jonas told me this. Oh, X's on the forehead. Well... The early punk rock, things were very regional. People came from, there was kids from Philadelphia, kids from Boston, kids from New York, kids from D.C., kids from Richmond, kids from Detroit, kids from Atlanta. So 
you just would run in. But people, because, you know, they're kids, and part of being a punk rocker is being marginalized, feeling marginalized, and looking for a family to belong to them. And because it was an era where there was so much sort of animosity coming towards kids who were punk rockers, they started to form fairly tight cells, their families. So when they moved, they went to other places, they would run into other people who were like also in their own kind of families. Um, so I don't know, like I know Boston had a crew of people. I know those kids from New York. I know those kids from Washington. I know there was a lot of, there was a lot of friction. But not everybody from Boston hated everybody from New York, and not everybody from Washington hated people from New York. It was sort of like, just, you just knocked heads. As far as like Boston and New York and a slam pit with X's in the heads, that sounds like a big cartoon to me. I don't even know what you're talking about. But sure, there was times where people had disagreements or whatever. But who would have won? Who gives? Who cares? Ian, how come you never got a tattoo? Before you answer that question, you've got two questions left. Thank you. Have you seen The Filth and the Fury? Yes. How would you compare that to Instrument? And you guys played with Pill at one time, and have you met Johnny Rotten? Um, he didn't speak with me, so I didn't meet him, I guess. My author, I did open for PIL, uh, uh, October 31st, 1982, Richie Coliseum. They, uh, we came off stage, we played for a pizza and a case of Coca-Cola. That was our payment that night. Um, and I think they came in, when we came off stage, they pulled up in a limousine after us, so it was sort of a two ships passing the night. Uh, and I don't really compare instrument to Filth and the Fury. I didn't, I never bothered comparing it. Did you? No, I was just curious no, if you thought about any comparison between the two. No, I didn't think about it. How did you guys get on top of the Capitol building with Bikini Kill? We're not on top of the Capitol building. Well, there was some big concert there. It seemed pretty wild in front of the Capitol buildings or whatever American word is. What is an American word? What does that mean? I don't know. American explanation. Park buildings, capital. We don't have words like that in Canada, Ian. We have like parliament, democracy. What is your question? Bikini Kill. Did you do a gig with Bikini Kill? Fugazi and Bikini Kill played Freedom Plaza. Or not Freedom Plaza. It was, um, what was that place called? It was out front of the Supreme Court. It was a, a park about three blocks to the north of the U.S. Capitol, which is the home of the... U.S. government, which I guess is not a parliamentary system, um, so I'm sorry about that. You seem put out by that, but the uh, I was just joking. Yeah, um, but we just play. Yeah, it, thing is, Washington is largely there's a lot of federal land there, and if you make ask for a permit, you can use those those ground. You can't really have concerts there, but you can have demonstrations. But because our our concerts tend to be we have themes about them usually. They're considered demonstrations, so we're able to pull off a lot of that kind of stuff. Conversely, um, there's some places where you can't have demonstrations, you can only have concerts. So this depends on where you go. For instance, the Lafayette Park, which is right in front of the White House, we wanted to ha put a concert on there, and this is 1988 or so, and we just wanted to have like a celebrate, like a May Day celebration kind of concert. They wouldn't let us have one because it was not a demonstration. So then we decided, okay, we'll have a demonstration. Uh, and uh, about um, education of birth, of, uh, of teenage birth, uh, pregnancies. People like May Day, kind of spring. And they said, yeah, no problem. All I have to do is come up with some, something. It's just, it's arcane and it's bureaucratic. And that's the U.S. government. That's all governments, probably. Thank you very much, Ian Mackay. Really appreciate your time. Keep on rocking in the free world and do 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 do. Nice to see you again, Nodawar. Please, Ian, <laughs> do 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 do. Take care. That was rhythmic. 
And you're still listening to the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. That there was an interview with Ian Mackay from 2001. And right now, here's a brand new interview from a few months ago with Ian Mackay. Who are you? My name is Ian Mackay. Ian, welcome to Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Thank you very kindly. Now, Ian, right off the bat, I have some gifts for you. Thank you for agreeing to this interview. And because you were agreeing to this interview, I have some Hendrix records for you. Um, I have most of these. In fact, I have all of these. These are all the Curtis Knight things. Thanks. I have, I have these, so you can hang on to them. Uh, but I was curious, though, with the songs that are on there, what can you say about some of the songs that are on there? songs are largely um, recorded with Curtis Knight. Hendrix, when he was living in New York in the 60s, he... Um, signed a contract uh, with a guy named Ed Chalpin, and uh, he, for like a dollar or something, and Ed Chalpin had the rights. He basically bought all of Hendrix's rights. He was his manager. Then Hendrix went to England with uh, Chaz Chandler, right, for the animals, and got the New Deal. Once he became a huge success, Ed Chalpin sued because um, he had this contract, and he was, uh, the settlement allowed him to put out these sort of off-brand Recordings. These recordings are largely um, recordings that were done with Curtis Knight. They're sort of R&B things. The quality is not necessarily great. Um, there are a couple of nice tracks. He plays guitar on it, but they're not, it's not actually him singing. You sure you don't have some of these? Because, like, the Canadian issue. Do you have the Canadian issue? Um, I don't know if I have the Canadian issue. Well, you do now. Okay. And also, it's interesting because Vancouver, Hendrix's grandmother yeah. lived in Vancouver, and so Vancouver has a big, heavy yes. connection. Yes, I know that, yeah. So we're not too far away, actually, from the Hendrix shrine here. I didn't realize there was this one here. What do you remember, Ian, about the 1991 gig, the Moodyville Moo Moo, that me and Grant Lawrence put on for Fugazi? I remember it was the first, I think probably the first time, I believe it was the first time Fugazi played in Canada. Maybe we played in Toronto before. Um... But I do remember that you had put on the show. You were an eccentric person. Um, I think Calvin maybe connected us. Is that possible? Grant Lawrence was talking to Calvin because the International Beat Underground thing was happening at that time. Underground Pop Festival. And um, but I think, were you at that? That's why you're there, to correct me, Ian. I appreciate that. Um, were you at the IPU? No, I didn't go down. I was exhausted from the gig. Right. Um, but you, they put this show on. It was in um, it was in North Vancouver Hockey Arena, I believe. Is that the name of it? North Van Hockey. North Van Rec Center. Rec Center. Okay. Um, it was not a good sounding room. I was pretty frustrated with the size of the room. I we we are interested as a, as a band. We were very interested in having rooms that had compression because we want the people to feel connected. When you have a room that's giant and there's no compression, people feel often feel disassociated with each other. With each other. I think. But on the other hand, we were a band that has a really specific sort of ideas about how we're playing doing all ages shows or charging certain amounts of money so we were looking for people who were um, courageous and visionary enough to find rooms that were off the beaten path you happen to be that person in Vancouver um, there was some I think there were some people in the crowd that were a little unpleasant that night. We had a little bit of friction with them. That was totally common. Um, but and that's actually what I'd like to revisit right now, Ian. Please do. I have want to play for Ian. Perhaps maybe you could just comment on some of the stuff that's happening here. But this is actually from the gig. If you want to bend down here, you can actually see. I can see. That you can see now that the sound is not particularly good. There are people dancing. We're playing the song Waiting Room. At the North Van Rec Center. 
1991 as produced by Nardwar, the human serviette. And Grant Lawrence, too. And it was... It's in all fairness. And it was called the Moodyville Moo Moo. Right. I remember I had to rent $800 worth of portable toilets for that gig. That's too bad. Don't they have bathrooms there? No, we had to get extra toilets for the gig. Oh, well, thank you for, for um, facilitating that. Now, continuing on here, Ian, does this look like a typical 1991 Fugazi gig? Yes. And as we pan back... Uh-huh. That's the size of the room. It's a big room. It was a hockey rink. How many people could that room hold, do you think? 5,000? Five or 10, yeah. Maybe how many people are there? 500? 1,300, 1,600? All right, so... Something's happening here. Probably a disturbance. Are you filming this? No, nope, my friend Bim Wallen is. <laughs> Pretty typical Fugazi show in the early, late 80s, early 90s. What is the point? What are we doing here? We're just analyzing this. Interesting stage banter from you, Ian. Um, it's pretty commonplace for the time. What are we doing here? We're just looking at it and analyzing it. It was like DVD commentary, I thought. Oh. I don't have, you know, it's, this is, you know, you, there were some people fighting at the show. We don't play music when people are fighting. It's just, I'm not interested in performing music while people are hurting the other people. So we stopped. People are yelling at us. We're talking back at them. Um... For instance, if right now someone was to run in here and attack you with a, a billy club, I would try to put a stop to it. It's the same concept, except in this case, there's 1,300 people. But by stopping playing, we're encouraging people to, we're trying to remove some of the um, tension in the situation. I'm a very dry humor. My humor is very dry, and it makes people very angry. I think this, you know, these people are angry with me, but I don't care. Because I'm not interested in people hurting other people. See? Now I'm being facetious. That's my humor. Well, there we have it. Fugazi 1991, Ian. Reliving it. Um, so, yeah, just in summary, in case people didn't catch that, what would you remember about that gig? And you were mentioning to me about somebody came in right now with a billy club. What do you mean by that? Well, I was actually talking, I was talking about the fact that I didn't play music if people were being injured. I only pointed out that if someone was to come hit you right now, I would put a stop to it as well. I wouldn't do the interview if you were being beaten up. In that situation, we were playing music and people were being beaten up, so we put a stop to it. This is a pretty common thing that was happening at that time because it was, it was a cultural shift. There were things that were changing culturally. So there were people who had certain behavioral rituals that they were trying to like, engage with at a show in which we were just not comfortable watching other people get hurt. That's all. It's pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Just trying to look out for the people. That's all. And I was at the hockey rink in North Van, the North Van Rec Center. I remember you almost made me cry, Ian, because you're mad it was a hockey rink. It wasn't because it was a hockey rink. It was because it was a room that was far too big and it sounded terrible. And in that situation, for instance, like I think that part of the disassociation of that crowd, like that crowd was getting angry with us, partially had to do with the fact that it was like the sound was so cacophonous, it just was very hard to focus. If we were in a smaller room, well, you know, we're just trying to make a great show. Like, for instance, like right now, you chose this particular spot, right, to do this interview. You didn't go out in the middle of, say, uh, is it Hastings? Up there, we didn't go. We're not standing in the middle of the street. Why? Why? Because there are a lot of people. It's too noisy. Cars are going by. Maybe some people, homeless people, would be fucking with us. You chose this spot because you're trying to get a good interview. So when I'm making music, right? If I'm doing an event, if I'm like talking, or if I'm trying to be in a band, I just want to make it as good as possible. I want people to be included. I don't want them to feel excluded. I don't want them to be distracted. And I think a lot of times when you have rooms that are really terrible sounding, it's distracting. But I didn't. I wasn't angry at you on a personal level. I was frustrated because we had come to Vancouver for the first time, and it was very important for us to do 
something good. We wanted to make a good show. Every night, all we guys wanted to do was make a good show, to make something that would mean something to us and other people. And it's frustrating when you have to contend with external things. For instance, acoustics, assholes, police, security. Like these situations, it's very distracting. If people are fighting during a song, you have to stop. That's a distraction. All we want to do is make a show with people. And, but this, at that time, there were a lot of hurdles, but we would jump them. But in that particular case, it was me and Grant putting on, you know, youngsters. It wasn't some big corporation like Periscope or something like that. Don't you give the youngsters a bit of slack? We were able to pull it off in a giant arena. We were able to accommodate all those people. You wouldn't be able to do that in the church hall. It took something to get it to that level because that was a huge gig. Did I never thank you for that show? No, you did, but you were mentioning you didn't like the hog. talking about? But I was saying like the hog. Didn't I show you some appreciation for that show? Uh, yes. Okay, and if you and I are friends? Yes. We remain friends? I hope so. Okay. Did I, do I, do you think that I trust you? What I was just trying to say, Ian. I understood you. No, no what I was trying to say, but worry, but I was saying. I understand, I understand. Hockey rink. I thought we did okay to get a hockey rink. I have no regrets about it. Well, that's good. Let's move on then. Sorry that you do. No, I don't have any regrets. I'm upset. No, I was just joking because years later you went, 2001, Miss Terry put on a gig also at a hockey rink. And I guess I always thought these years that you were mad that it was the hockey rink. And I was saying, look, it's got wood in it. It's not bad. It's the best we can do. It's better than going with a big corporation. Because the next time you came back to Vancouver, remember you did a gig with Periscope at the Plaza of Nations. And it wasn't $6 and it was put on by big security guards. It was just us and our friends putting it on. One of them was a bit more than $6, but it, okay, okay, I'm wrong. Okay, you know more than me. You know, I, I correct myself. You know the answers. But I am saying it was put on by a different organization and a bunch of guys like me and Grant and people from CITR. Right. What I'm saying isn't a bunch of kids putting it on with their friends, yeah. making maybe a few mistakes better than doing it with a big organization. Yes. Did we not do the show with you? You did it with us, did but then... Did you the show with Terry in 2001? Yes, you did. Was she a kid? No, she did an amazing job, but in between... So the question is... In between, you had another booking agent, right? That's what caused that I, show? I, that show. I, I was working with somebody. I worked with her. But at that time, Fugazi was huge. And we were trying to figure out places to play. Did you, not, did you listen to me just talking down there or not? Were you out about... No, I was listening totally. So, I, could, I think I, was, I can explain to you again uh, if you like. But basically, the circumstances, like you start to deal with the reality of the, situ, the situation. So certain numbers of people, how many people were at that Plaza show? The Plaza, was it Plaza of the World? I don't know. I wasn't promoting it. I couldn't do anything after that. Probably, you couldn't do anything after what? There weren't many other gigs after that 91 one. A few every couple months, but that was... Crushing for you? $800 worth of portable toilets. I remember the people running the place at Nardwar. We have you by the balls. If this gig goes wrong, you're going to ruin it for everybody else. Did you lose money on the show? No, didn't lose money at all. But this, it hurt a lot stressfully because when you have somebody coming up to you say, Nardwar, we have you by the balls. If you screw up this gig, you're going to screw it up for all the kids coming after you. So we didn't want to do that. It went happening successfully, and I was very happy. And I guess I was always wondering, and now you finally cleared it up, about the hockey type thing. I thought you didn't want a hockey rink. You just didn't like the venue size. So now I understand. In America, I would have said basketball arena. It just so happens here, it's a hockey arena. It's just the size of a room. It's a gym. It's essentially a gym. It's a big, shitty-sounding room. We were always trying to... I think when you described it, you're like, it's a really beautiful wooden hockey room. So we had it in our mind. It was a wood... But it's not. It was a giant room with some wood in it. So should we have declined and not done the gig? I guess what I'm wondering is, it was, it was the only place we could do it because it was... And we did it. Yeah, we did it. We you pulled... Do it. We did it. Yes, we, Grant Lawrence, the whole team. Yeah. Okay. No. Did, did we do it? It happened. It was amazing. Your question has been answered. It's one of the greatest moments of my life. Okay, so you asked, should, have, should we have not done it? 
We did it. I Your guess, question is answered. This is a hypothetical question. Going back in, sorry. What I'm curious about is a kid puts on a gig for Fugazi, 400 seater. Then you get a bit bigger, right? And let's say you need about 1,500, 1,800 people. It's hard to find that sort of mid-level venue before you get the Plaza of Nation size in Vancouver. So where else do you think we could have done that in Vancouver? You don't know the venues in Vancouver, but from other towns that you've been to, do you think there was a venue that we could have done it? There was a hall. We tried hard and couldn't find anything else. What would have been the proper procedure when dealing with you? Should we said, look, in? we've tried. We can't find. All we have is a hockey rink. Like, would you have been happy if we were more upfront with you and said, it's a hockey rink? If you said this is the only venue we have, we would have done the show. We did plenty of shows in rooms that we were See, not... That was our mistake. We should have said this is the only one we can get. I, you know, I think you're a bit of a revisionist, you know? And, for, and I think it's probably um, for this particular exchange. Um, I suspect, like, I know you talked with Lisa Miller at some point. I'm sure, I know I talked to you before we did that gig. Yeah, but Grant and, did all the organization, so... Okay, but I spoke at length about it because I always followed up. I asked a lot of questions. I was trying to find out about the room. I was told that it's a good-sounding room. It was not a good-sounding room. So I was frustrated. It has nothing to do with whether or not I think kids should do shows or not do shows. And if there's only a particular available arena and like, should you have not done the show? I kind of think you're over-dramatizing the situation. I thanked you for the show. You did not lose money. I think many people, that's a pretty, they, they like that show. We were very happy to have been able to come to Vancouver. Everything is good. And it's an amazing moment, too. Like, I love that heckler moment, too. I actually met the guy years later, and he apologized to me for heckling you. Yeah. Have you met people like that 10 years later to say, sorry, I was the guy that heckled you, I'm sorry? Yeah, many times. So that guy did it to me. And to me, I would like to say, me and Grant putting it together is one of the greatest moments of our lives. And I love that it's preserved on video that Bill Mullen shot there. Like, it was great. I loved the gig. I guess I was always wondering about the hockey rink thing. But now you've actually answered that question. So it's nothing prepared for that. I have to say, I'm, I feel terrible. If you've lost a single night of sleep over this, we were doing something together and the heat of the moment, people get like sometimes it gets a little bit fired up, but I didn't attack you. No, no, it was fun. It was all fun. Sure. I sent you a thank you card. I was very good about that. Yes, you left a post-it note on Grant Lawrence's house, like phone or whatever, and they've had it up there for years. It's amazing. No, I totally loved it. It was just fun to be able to play the video footage back. That's why I'm reliving because I recently saw the video footage, and I thought I should ask you about it. I think you asked for a copy of it, probably. Yeah. Yeah, because I really enjoy doing vids. Archive, we have about 500 Fugazi videos in our archive now, maybe May 600. We have a lot. Ian, speaking of Canadian bands, the Subhumans keg cooler story. I had asked you about this before. Could you explain a bit of background on it? The Subhumans played Washington, D.C. Yeah. I saw their, um, the documentary. It was a, a little teaser for the, the Vancouver. Was it Vancouver? Bloody But Unbowed, a movie about punk in Vancouver. Yes, it did, by Suzanne Tabata. Great. I'd love to see it someday. But I remember seeing a little an interview piece with them. And they're, like, they're, the way they recalled it was so interesting to me because it was not the way I recall it, but this is the way most history is. Um, do you want me to tell you the story of that particular show? Yeah, exactly. What did they say and what happened? Something about a cake cooler. There was... <clears throat> in, George, in Washington, D.C., there's a neighborhood called Georgetown, and Georgetown is a home of a lot of very rich people. And there was a... One house was like an estate, a giant house, and there was a, a high school girl who went to a school called Madeira. Madeira is a very exclusive private school. She was friends with somebody who was in a, this band, Iron Cross. 
And she said, hey, I'm having this um, graduate. I'm graduating. We're having a graduation party at my school. And then afterwards, we're going to have a party at our house. Does your band want to play? And he said, yeah, sure. Iron Cross. So at that time, if you were in a young DC punk band, as soon as you got a gig, you just invited everybody else to come play the show because we all shared equipment. So he said, hey, we got this like, show. Everyone should come play. So Minor Threat, Red Sea, SOA. Um, Subhumans. They weren't playing. No, they, they were there. I don't think they played. I don't think they played. They were in town. They, did, they played in town. But um, that sh- because the graduation, we got there early, right? Because they were at their graduation thing. It was an after-graduation party. So we said, like, be home, we'll be there at 10. Let's all get there at 8, and we'll have a show. Because there was a PA, like, and there was, like, we had the room, and we just went there. And the people, like her parents or whoever were there, just thought it was part of the party. Even though her, their child and their, her friends were not there. So subhumans were there as well. They were in town. The party's house, though, was it a senator house? Like, was it somebody involved in politics? Somebody, no, but it was a, a, maybe politics, somebody who was very well off, well healed. They had, like, staff, right? So they had a keg cooler set up. And it was plugged into the only available outlet. So we need to plug in the PA. We need one more outlet. So we unplugged the cooler and plugged in the PA. And we had the show. The, the kids, the private school kids were not there. They hadn't come back from the graduation. We were having a show. We were having our own show in this part of this house. Then they came back in the middle of all the action. And they saw the PA while we were playing. And they plugged in the keg cooler. So then we unplugged the keg cooler and plugged in the PA. And it went back and forth until we got into basically like fisticuffs. Um, and then it was just like running, you know, fighting with these private school kids and running around and then bailing. I remember the subhumans being there because they're big guys and they're kind of scary guys. And I remember the, the high school kids who were like, like getting up in our face. They were, they were scared of them dudes. And the subhumans finished the beer because they were saying that they, had, they were eating the beer and drinking the beer. Yeah, they were drinking the beer. But I think, they're, I think, I think the thing I saw was them talking about like, yeah, all those straight edge kids, they were freaked out. We were drinking beer. I, I think that they, I think that's a little bit of a stretch. A lot of people in Washington were heavy drinkers, too. They, it wasn't just the Canadians. So I don't think it was that much of an issue. But it was a pretty funny night. I remember Henry got there late because at that time, um, we both worked. I think it was well, Henry was working at the ice cream store, so he had to come after work. So he arrived, and it was already, like, everything was, had gone into craziness. So he just, like, ran in the middle of it, and then we all just ran off. And it just bailed, grabbed our gear and split, and they had their party. Did you ever do a party like that again? I think it's pretty much shown. I don't. Yeah, we didn't play a lot of parties because we were. I, I didn't like wrecking people's houses. And kid, I don't. I'm not into vandalism, so I think I always felt a little weird about doing shows in people's houses. Ian, back to Washington D.C. What can you tell the people about your favorite scene, the go-go scene? Not necessarily Trouble Funk, but so many other bands like Chuck Brown and EU. And you say it's my favorite scene because why? Because you played one of your last gigs with Minor Threat with Trouble Funk. You love the funk, right? Um, I have a deep abiding respect for go-go. Go-go is a form of music that is indigenous and really specific to the D.C. area. It doesn't really get much outside the Beltway. It is a, it's been going on for almost 40 years now. I can remember that the first time I heard it was a Trouble Funk song. I was with Henry driving in a car, and we heard this song, Pump Me Up by Trouble Funk, which might be on here. I don't know. Um, we heard it, and we just pulled over, like, this is such cool music. And they said it was Trouble Funk, and, we're like, and we asked around. They said, yeah, it's a local band. I talked to HR from the Bat Branch, and I said, um, 
what do you know about trouble funk? He's like, oh, that's old. That's old go-go. Like, go-go's already, that's old. And he was like two years old at that point. And he was talking about this band, Junkyard Band, who played on trash cans. Um, yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you about. The Junkyard Band, because there's a bit of confusion with the minor threat history in Junkyard. Maybe you can clarify that at all. There's your Junkyard, and then there's the Junkyard Band, right? Are you confused by it? No, I thought it was kind of interesting, though, because it, some of the guys from your band... Brian Baker. Turned into Junkyard, right? From Los Angeles. From Los Angeles. And here's the Junkyard band from Washington, D.C. The, the, the same word is being used. Yes, exactly. I see that. <laughs> okay. It's uh, from Washington, D.C., which is fascinating to me. I love that. The band Junkyard is not from Washington, D.C. This Junkyard is from Washington, D.C. Yes, they are. And this is when Def Jam, Rick Rubin signed them. This is, a, this is kind of like one of the moments where they, they thought like, Go-Go's going to finally break out. But it's weird because it can't really break out. There's still Go-Go bands playing to this day. And this is interesting. Now, like, there's not really records. But if you go online, all these young Go-Go bands post videos of themselves rehearsing. And it's like there's hundreds of them. These very obscure bands, all these kids and their friends in like these rec rooms rehearsing. And that's their output. That's the thing they put out. It's a really interesting development. Um, Go-Go is a really fascinating form of music, I think. Did you ever see the Junkyard Band? Because originally that was kids, right? I saw them a number of times, yeah. They were kids and they grew up. What was the setup when they were kids, though? Like when you saw them, they were, they were called what we what they they were what was called a bucket band. So they used um, white paint buckets usually, and they would turn them over, maybe put them in shopping carts, get shopping carts rattle. So they kind of create a little bit of. So they would bang on these white paint buckets, and then the, they would and they you know you can you hear the sound of a shopping cart. They kind of shh. Um, so they that's and they would there maybe six kids playing on buckets. And then maybe upside down trash cans, plastic trash cans. And then a couple of dudes doing the call and response singing. But, you know, really, now with this incredible internet, I would encourage people to go look it up and they can hear it for themselves. Junkyard in later years had a more tra traditional format. Fugazi played a show Junkyard. We played with him at a small um, community center in Silver Spring, Maryland. And setting up that show was very interesting because... One thing about Go-Go is that these bands are very neighborhood-based, a lot of these bands. So, and D.C. has, uh, um, there's a lot of different areas in the city. And so if a band is, say, from Northeast or Southeast or from Lincoln Heights or from Petworth or Anacostia, that those bands attract kids from that particular area. So you can't, they can't play in another area because it's bad blood. So when we were setting up the show with Fugazi and Junkyard, and I was talking to their manager, the, the hardest thing was finding neutral ground, a place that we could play in which the fact that they were playing didn't offend the people around them. Like, in other words, Junkyard, who were from Anacostia, couldn't play a show at the Clifton Terrace Boys Club because the Clifton Terrace crew would descend upon the joint. Do you understand? So it was a very interesting process. We found a neutral spot in this rec center out in Silver Spring, Maryland, which is just outside the city. Another thing interesting about a lot of go-go bands is they will not play unless they're paid. And that is totally contrary to the like Fugazi. We didn't get paid for a show since 1989 on. We were never paid a dime for a single show in Washington, D.C. Every show is either a free show outdoors or is a benefit for something. So when we wanted to do the show, it was a benefit for a group that was dealing with the parents of, um, uh, I think it was 
actually it was Wish, I think it was Washington Inner City Help, and it was working with kids who were in, at risk, and we were doing a benefit for them, and so, but to get Junkyard to play with us, they were like, we need to get paid. It's just like, because they have been, I think the point is that a lot of bands have been taken advantage of, so they just have a rule of thumb that we must be paid. And we finally negotiated with them a way to do this, because we thought, like, you, we, we're paying for the PA, or we're, we're not getting paid, we're the draw, so we kind of feel like we can't really, in good faith, can't pay you. But they finally decided that they would do is that they would play, some of them would play with us, and then they would all join the rest of them and play another show. They would get paid that night, just not the particular show we were playing. Ian, to bring you back to youth, I have another gift for you. You mentioned them before, the Trouble Funk. Do you have this record? Can I give this to you? I have it. I have all these records. The Canadian issue? That doesn't make a difference to me. You're not like a record collector scum where you want the Canadian issue too? I'm not a record collector or a record collector scum. So I can't give this to you? I usually give it to somebody else. I have these songs. It's good. It's good music. Trouble Funk, Meyer Thread played our last show, Trouble Funk, September 24th, 1983. It was the Punk Funk Extravaganza. Um, at that time, we were the largest punk band in Washington. They were the largest go-go band in Washington. And big Boys were there too, right? Big Boys played as well, which is a punk-funk band, see? Um, and that was a pretty interesting experience. They're a great band. And I actually, um, recently Chuck Brown, who is the guy... Rest in peace. Yep, he just died. And I went down to his funeral. I got there late, um, but I got to the very tail end of it. And it was the Washington Convention Center. There's probably 7,000 people came. And I saw Big Tony, the bass player of Trouble Funk, who is right there. Big Tony, and I saw him, and it was really nice to see him. And he always says, Minor Threat. He remembers me well. In Winnipeg, Manitoba, Minor Threat. Do you remember the gig there where somebody threw a railway flare onto the dance floor? That does sound familiar. Yeah. Winnipeg goes in that hall. We played Win- On that tour, we played Winnipeg, and we played a place called Ten Foot Henry's in Calgary. Um... The show in Winnipeg was much more of like a weird theater hall. And there's a video of it. Which, did, were you heard about this, the fair, uh, flare? Did you see it in the video? I was told about the flare. I by don't the, remember the flare exactly. Can I put these down? Oh, yes, please, go ahead. I was told about the flare by the author of this book on SNFU. And this is another gift for you, Ian. Hopefully you'll take this. I will take this. And this is by Chris Walter. And he saw you with Minor Threat in Winnipeg. And he wrote this book about SNFU. And SNFU loved you guys, as you can see, Minor Threat t-shirt right there. Did you ever encounter SNFU at all? Of course, yeah, I saw them. They're a great band. So the Winnipeg show, the flare went off, but the show went off. You were happy with it? It was a good show, yeah. And and the Calgary, Alberta one, what about that show? What was that like? That was small and pretty crazy. We, you know, the, there's a very well-known or I think somewhat infamous punk house that was like a skater house in Calgary. It appears in Another State of Mind, the film, and we stayed at that house and it was pretty great. They were nice, really nice kids. And then you almost made it to Vancouver, but there was a snowstorm that stopped you from getting to Vancouver, or you never had one planned? No. Uh, we had a show opening for the Dead Kennedys in Vancouver. It was the next night. The drive from Calgary to Vancouver is a tricky one, and it was in it was April 19th, I think, of 1983. Uh, and there had been a snowstorm, and three of the members of Meyer Threat were sick. And we had already had a big blow up about this in Winnipeg because they need to go to the hospital. And I didn't want to, I thought they shouldn't like spend money at a hospital because I come from America where you walk into a, the hospital and you get fleeced. And they're like, but it turned out that at that time, especially that, you know, you could go to an emergency room and like get, you part with like 10 bucks and they were, they had throat problems. So they were sick. There was a snowstorm 
and it's an impossible drive, and we thought it's going to happen. The show's gonna, it's not like our show. It's going to happen. Dead Kennedys are going to play, and we just didn't make it. I regret it. I would like to have been there. I would like to have gone to Vancouver. Ian, does this book right here, Devils, Demons, and Witchcraft, bring back any memories to you? No. Void Faith. All right, okay, yeah. Is this the book then that Void and Faith took some of the artwork from? I suppose it is. I guess Void did. I don't think Faith did, did they? I don't know. I mean, this is, I was not involved. Yeah, it looks like Void stuff. So for something like this, when somebody takes something like that, it's neat when fans find out where they took it from, isn't it? Yeah. Have you had any instances of that? I know Jello has had that before, where bands have taken images and it has come back to haunt them. Have you had that in your experience with Discord at all? I mean, in terms of litigious, sort of, no. No. How do you clear all the stuff? We don't. But how would other stuff do you have to clear? Like some of the photos you've taken. Like, for instance, I noticed, like, for the Discord stuff, you're always crediting on the Discord ads, you know, who took the photo and stuff. That's not a legal issue. That's just an etiquette. And you've never had any problem with any of the people look, looking for photos or anything like that? Being angry about us using their photo? No. Why would we? Just curious, because I guess other labels have encountered that. Yeah, but... We're Discord. We don't, do, we, don't, we don't do fucked up things. I'm not saying that they do. I'm just saying that it's just like we're just... I've never had a... We've never had an issue with that. I mean, there's been... The only issue I can think of in 1990-something, 5, 96 maybe, um, we were reissued... There's a band from D.C. called Scream, and we were reissuing their two albums on a CD. Um, actually, they had four records. We are going to do two CDs. And we received a cease and desist from a company called um, Hollywood Records. They had a band, they signed a band called The Scream, and they sent us a cease and desist saying they had the rights to the name. But this was 12 to 15 years after we had put out The Scream stuff, so clearly we had first use. There's no question about that, right? Because 1981 is before 1995. so I said to the guy, he called, and he, I called the number. We get the cease and desist fax, and I called him, and I said, no, no. He said, no, you can't put this out. We have a band. We've been promoting. We spent a half a million dollars promoting them. We don't want people to be confused. And I said, yeah, okay, well, I'm, so, I'm not worried about it. I think these are very different bands. Now, the issue really was that the last record, or the last later era scream, the drummer was Dave Grohl, and Dave Grohl was in Nirvana, Right, and this guy was scared because he thought that we were trying to, like, he was worried that there would be like we would basically be pulling sales from them that they've been promoting the Scream and somehow Scream with Dave Grohl was you know going to somehow affect their sales. Anything it would help them, maybe. I mean, I thought it was ridiculous. So he said to me, um, "Oh, we don't, you know, you can't put that out." And I said, "I said we've already made them." I said. And we're only doing these CDs. They're not going to sell that many. They didn't sell that many records to begin with. I said, we're just making a CD of records that already exist. We're going to put... And he said, well, we're just worried about people being confused. The consumers will be confused. I said, well, I'm not worried about it. So we can all rest. I think you can rest. He said, well, we think you should put a sticker on the front of your CD saying um, from Washington, D.C. But we would already made and distributed these records. So I wasn't going to recall them to put these stickers on. So I said to him, I know, why don't, the onus is upon you. We have first use. Why don't you put stickers on saying from L.A.? And he says, yeah, that's probably the way it should happen. It's not the way it's going to happen. And I said, well, what can I say? And he says, let me explain something to you. He says, Hollywood Records is a division of Disney. 
Disney is a multi-billion dollar company with an on-staff legal wing. He says, we will sue you. He said, we will take you to court and you might be right, but you will be broke long before you can ever prove it. I said, okay, I'll, I'll talk to my friend. He said, I have a lawyer who's like a friend who just had become a lawyer. I said, what do you think? He's like, and he was like, let's triple sue. I was like, I don't want to, no lawsuits, not interested in any of that kind of thing. As it turned out, The Scream hated their name and they changed their name. They had nothing to do with us whatsoever. They, they changed their name and then they broke up. So it was a moot point. But this actual interaction was, was pretty much, it was the only time we ever had any kind of really serious litigious stuff. That's it. Ian, winding up here. Did I bore you? No, no, I love that. I love that. I love little tidbits of information. It's awesome. I really appreciate your time, Ian. Thank you for taking it. Kristen Stewart, I asked you about this before, her wearing the minor threat shirt. I actually wanted to get you to comment on that before. What was that all about? Remember Kristen Stewart? Yeah, she was doing a biopic about Joan Jett or The Runaways. Is that correct? I never saw the movie. I think part of what was going on, she was trying to be in character. She had, Joan, uh, of course, had been, was an advisor or a consultant to the set. Joan is a big minor threat and Fugazi fan. And I think she encouraged her to wear the shirt. I was surprised by the, I don't know why it makes a difference if someone wears a shirt. I was surprised the amount of excitement about that or the amount of chatter. I just don't, I don't get it. To me, it was just, I didn't think twice about it. Like, okay, she's wearing a shirt. But it was very strange. People picked up on him. And apparently it was like Joan Jett gave her a bunch of shirts to wear and that was one of them. That's what I heard. That's not, okay, it sounds right. You sound like you already know. Well, I'd asked you, but I had a chance to ask you in person. Yeah, I think, yeah, Joan, is a, she's a friend, nice person. Really nice person, and she's a fan. I was, it was nice of her, yeah. And I'm a fan of all your stuff too, Ian. Thank you. And I actually collect some stuff related to you. Yes. And I was wondering, I have a gift for you, and again, I'm not sure if you already have this or not, but this Mitch Clem, nothing nice to say. I think I've seen this, but I would like to... Because um... that is a bit of an Ian illusion, is it not? <laughs> what do you think? Well, I do. I mean, I just, I thought maybe I was, you know, I, uh, you know. This is a, um, this is a, not a parody, but a riff on uh, the cover of the Salad Days record. It's a photo taken by Glenn Friedman in 1983. This is the front porch of Discord House. This would be me. That would be Jeff. That would be Lyle. That would be Brian. Is, is that a beer? Uh, whatever. Um, you know, yeah. Okay. That's from Mitch Clem, too. Nothing nice to say. I don't know Mitch Clem. He's a great cartoonist. Yeah, it looks good. I think I, I do feel like I've seen this. Is this a gift? Yes, that is a gift. I will take this. I will put this in my collection. There's many, 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 many riffs on this. You know, many, I've many times come out of the house and there'll be four people I don't know in this, sitting in this position on my front porch. Do you have any favorite riffs on this at all or are there just too many to remember? The Mitch Clem one is pretty good here. It's nice, yeah. We actually did one when Jeff got married in 1994. Um, now it was his best man. Uh, we, he wonder, he re recreated the photo, but we were wearing tuxedos. That's a funny one. And there's actually a, a single, a Salad Days jacket. He made, like Jeff made 10 jackets with that photo instead of the other one. Oh, wow. Where can I get one of those? Any of those leaked out at all on eBay? Uh, not that I know of, no. Ian, anything else you want to add to the people out there at all? Um, let me think. Well, I didn't enter the, into this 
wanting to add anything to begin with. Um, so it's not, I don't really have anything to... Or should I rephrase this? Thank you for your time, Ian. I really appreciate you talking to me for this interview. I have to say that, um, how many times have we done this? Four? Three. We've done three interviews. We basically have done two and a bit. Because remember once I approached you in Olympia, Washington. Down on that one. You shot me down pretty good, didn't you? Because I kind of started recording, but you don't like being started recording. What I don't like is um, personas sometimes. And I feel like that you and I were having a conversation. And then as soon as we started the thing, you went into a, a different character. And it, it, it just makes me uncomfortable. The guy, just, I'm just me. And I think of you as a friend. So I think when you, you know, it's your gig and you get amped, um, but it makes me feel like I'm now a part of your, like, your play or something. Like your, and I just think, ah, it's unnecessary. But I actually, you know, I like you. I'm a fan of your work. Um, but I think, th and you have a very confrontational style of, of interviewing. Um, and it's sometimes very funny. You're a smart man. You do a lot of research. So that's... Very respectable. But there's a certain kind of got you stuff that I just don't give a fuck about that. You know, especially from people who I consider a friend. How could I improve myself then, though, Ian, from all the interviews you've done? Because you've done more interviews than a lot of people have ever done, right? You've done a lot of interviews. You probably hold the world record for interviews, right? I, I doubt that. I doubt I hold any record on that. But um, how could you... I think to... Um, I would think, well, the thing is, the way you interview, I think in some ways, for some people, it's very effective and they like it. I looked at your presentation earlier and you had, like, Snoop obviously enjoys talking to you. And I think they get, people like, it's like, you know, that other dude was like, you're incredible, you know, um, that guy from Nerd. Um, so, clearly you're doing well. But it doesn't mean that you do well with everybody. I don't know if your DVD had other interviews that didn't go so well. I mean, I imagine sometimes people have, not just been, they may have been a little punchy with you. Was that, is that a fair assessment? Yes, indeed. Yeah, all right. Um, but I don't really know, I guess the point is like, what do you, what is the aim here? Like, what is it you're trying to elicit? Like, what is it, like, if you're, are you curious or is this more of just about you? Like, that's the question. Like, are you genuinely curious? Are you interviewing because you want to know something? Or are you interviewing people because this is like your shtick and it's what you do? I think you are actually a very serious fan. And I think you have discovered a vehicle in which you're able to engage with people and it's really successful, clearly. You've been doing it for a long time now. You're doing, you do very well. Um, but at the same time, it is to some degree, like it becomes, um, at times it feels a little like, it just make, you know, it makes people feel uncomfortable. Cause, I think if you and I were to sit down with a cup of tea, for instance, we could talk. And I, would pref I think I would appreciate that more than having like, um, the pace of this interview, this light, a guy with a camera f going back and forth. You know, This is a performance. I guess what I was thinking was, we don't always have that amount of time. You know, we only say I have 20 minutes for an interview or whatever. If we could have a couple hours, yeah, that would be great. I would love to do it. But usually when you only have a bit of time, you have to kind of increase the pace a little bit. How long have we been talking right now? I'm not sure. I was just waiting for you to say it's time to leave. But generally, not as long as we would if we were like sitting on an airplane or on a chairlift together. I think it's quite possible that if we had, in this exact same scenario... Have I gotten here and you had done this presentation and I had done the thing I did downstairs and it was all over and we were having some food, I think there's a very good chance that you and I could have sat down and talked 
easily this long right what, now. But would I be allowed to record it, though? That's not a conversation. That's a performance. You could record it, maybe, but it's going to change. It's just going to change the conversation. Well, I enjoy the personal nature of it. However, I would feel bad that I'm not recording it, so we can't share it with others. Maybe the way you can share things is by letting the conversation, that exchange, develop within you certain ideas or activities, and then you. Talk to other people. Like I have a lot of conversations that are deeply affecting, really encouraging, inspiring conversations that are not being recorded. Those are not. That's not lost time. That is. Those are. That is well spent time. But when you do a radio show every week and the listeners demand and want information, they'd be like, "Man, you went out for dinner with Ian Mackay. What did you learn? Can we hear the tape? We love to hear that. How dare you not share Ian Mackay with us?" And that's what I was thinking. I was trying to do, just trying to share you. I think it's kind of spoiled if I were to go out to dinner with you and not record it because I want the information that you say for people to learn about because I think that's fascinating. I don't agree with you, but I'm doing your interview. So clearly, I'm like I'm willing to talk with you. Oh, I'm every- answering question. I'm answering. I'm talking with you. I'm having a conversation with you. All I said was I would prefer to sit down and talk with you. Like I was very interested in the bit you did about your mom. That that piece of work that you sent me. You sent me a link to a video about your mom. Fascinating. Seemed like a very interesting human being. Clearly, somebody who had a deep effect on you. Like that's interesting to me. But it's not necessarily something that's like, you know, check out this doll, check out this thing, check out this record. Or, you know, that's a different story. I'm just telling you what I would prefer. But I'm standing here. I appreciate your honesty, Ian. That means a lot. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, thanks so much, Ian Mackay. Keep on rocking in the free world. And doot, doodaloot, doot, doot, doot.
Dutch Sparkmaker, along with Carpenter and Narrows, on September 28th at the Rickshaw Theatre. After over 15 years, this much-acclaimed and highly influential Vancouver post-hardcore band is reuniting for one night of select songs from two of their most well-regarded albums, Products and Accessories and 500-watt Burner at 7. Tickets are available at Zulu and Red Cat Records and online at LiveNation.com. Listen, if they're so hot, how come they're not tearing up the charts, babe? Because you never play them, babe. At CITR, our hosts choose the music they play. That means our charts actually reflect the tastes of music lovers, as opposed to focus groups. So if you want to know what's really tearing up the charts, get your hands on a copy of Beatroot or Discorder magazine, or go online to CITR.ca. CITR's charts are based on actual spins motivated by actual preference. No payola, no marketing, just good tunes. Refreshing, no? 